hun, it's me, Danielle. I am a licensed clinical mental health counselor, and I'm here to talk about all the ways multi-level marketing and mental health do not mix. It is important to know that this podcast is not meant to diagnose or for treatment. This podcast is based off of personal experiences and opinions, and is meant to educate and entertain. Now sit back and start healing with me on this episode of From Huns to Humans. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone. Before we get started on today's episode, I just wanted to put a content warning that we do talk about some pretty graphic domestic violence at some points during this discussion and we do swear a lot and there might be some other triggering topics in this episode. So please listen with caution. Thank you. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of From Huns to Humans. I'm so excited today. We've had a lot of people like in the community on this podcast the last few episodes. Um, And this episode is going to be a little bit different, but a little bit the same. (laughs) (laughs) We have Jacqueline here um, and she has her own podcast called um, On, On the MS. On the MS, yes. On the MS. And I started listening to it and her story is so interesting and I'm really excited because it's not, your story isn't just MLMs, it's also other things. So I'm excited yeah. to hear it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go for it. <laughs> um, okay, well, so my name is Jacqueline. Hello. I, um, so where I am now is I am, um, I helped start a movement called Enthusiastic Sobriety Abuse. And then out of that, I helped start the Enthusiastic Sobriety Abuse Alliance nonprofit. And that was in order to uh, take down Bob Meehan's Enthusiastic Sobriety Programs, which have been operating for about 50 years. And they have been abusing children and families for 50 years. And a group of us got together and decided that uh, it was time to stop them. Uh, lots of people have tried in the past and, um, you know, gotten close, but we are, you know, we, we're working really hard to make it happen this time. And um, I am now living in Memphis with my husband and three dogs and two cats (laughs) Um, with our little menagerie. And I am in school for, to get a degree in criminal justice and forensic psychology. So I can continue to work with help and hopefully make some little change to how people with mental health you know, issues are treated in our criminal justice system, because right now it is abhorrent. Um, And, and, and in the process of this, so I grew up in Amway, I was an Amway child. And if anyone doesn't know what Amway is, I'm sure you do. But just in case, uh, Amway is kind of the godfather of multi-level marketing 
pyramid schemes. And they are actually the reason that pyramid schemes are legal. And that's when the name, when there became a, uh, a break from the term pyramid scheme and we started using phrases like multi-level marketing company, direct sales and network marketing. So Amway is the reason for that. Um, it's a long story. It's a very interesting story. And I definitely recommend listening to um, the Dream podcast, season one, especially um, with Jane Marie, who I adore. Um, she gets into the, the legislation, the court case, everything that happened to bring that about. So you can thank Amway for all of the boss babes we are dealing with now. <laughs> thank you, Amway. Um, so I was raised in Amway and uh, like literally my parents joined, I think in 1974 and I was born in 1976. Um, my mom went into labor with me as she was coming off the stage at an Amway convention where she and my father were speaking because they were, uh, I think they were diamonds, which is one of the highest levels you can get to in Amway. Um, so that was my life. I didn't know anything else. So it's not like, uh, you know, I had any opportunity to compare reality to what was my reality growing up. Um, it just was my reality. Um, so, you know, things like, um, and if there are any old school Amway children listening to this, I don't know if they do this anymore, but they used to do this thing called showing the plan, um, which is where they would invite people. So it's the seventies and early eighties, right? So like, uh, you know, potlucks and like, Hey, come on over to our place for dinner. And everyone's smoking cigarettes and, you know, like the wife has cooked this big meal and everyone sits around in the living room and drinks wine. And like, it's a very 70, like, I know people do that now, but like in the seventies, it was like very like American, Americana, white, wealthy people culture was to have these like dinner parties, you know, in their dining rooms with their China. And, you know, so my parents did all of that stuff. And so they would invite, uh, you know, uh, prospective um, uh, downlines, essentially, they didn't call them downlines back then, but uh, they would invite people over that they wanted to, you know, talk to about the business. That's what they called it, the business. Yeah. Um, I think they still call it that today, but, and then they would do this thing called showing them the plan, which was essentially, they would get out a whiteboard um, or like a poster board, you know, like whatever, a flip chart, whatever. And they would essentially draw a pyramid Okay. So it would be, they would say like, here's you and your wife. And it was always couples. It was always married couples. Very rarely were there single people who were involved in this, right? Because they needed both people to be on board. Right. And they would, so they would draw like them at the top of the pyramid. They would say, here's you. And then 
you invite your neighbors. So then they would draw two circles and then you're, you know, and, and so you invite your neighbors, you invite your coworker and his wife, you invite um, your cousin and his wife, right? So then we've got the second level of the pyramid. And then it would be your, uh, your neighbors, they invite two people two couples and then your coworkers they invite two couples and then your cousin they invite two couples so now you've got three four five six seven eight nine people below you and then they would draw it out like if each person invited two people and then they'd be like what if each person invited five people so by the end of it you've got you know hundreds of people right below you but it was literally a pyramid <laughs> like that's how it would end up looking right and 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 it would just motivate and people would be like sign me up that night like it was like we are in you know um because then my parents would start with the like this is how much money you could make and this is what you know and and so people and my dad was extremely charismatic. I mean, he was, he was real, he was very funny, um, very charming. He could draw people in. People felt very comfortable with him. They felt very loved and cared for by him. Uh, and my mom was a great foil for him. I mean, she was very elegant and like, you know, they, I mean, they just came off as these very like wealthy, worldly, intelligent people, which they were, they were very, both very intelligent, both very well educated. Um, and so people wanted, you know, and they, they, people wanted what they had and were like, sure, sign me up. And so my parents like skyrocketed to the top, right? Because they signed up all these people. But as we know about MLMs is there literally aren't enough people in the world to sign up. Like you can't, you can't keep that momentum going. Right. You know, like if your cousin who you've signed up under you, um, you know, hits a point after a couple months where he's like, you know what, this really isn't for me. Then you've just lost 50 people potentially. Yeah. Right. Um, and so it, it was very short-lived, unfortunately for my parents. Uh, my dad also was, um, legitimately an, an alcoholic. He was very abusive. Um, he'd had an extremely traumatic childhood. So he was like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, like with potential downlines, he was wonderful. You know, he was like that. They got that side of my dad at home. We got holes punched in walls and slapped around and yelled at and it was like walking on eggshells we never knew which dad we were gonna get and my mom was working full-time and so she was never home and I think that was on purpose like I don't think she wanted to deal with it either <laughs> you know um and I was a latchkey kid which meant I was just home alone a lot like I walked home from school and you know i after school, I sat around and watched TV and made myself dinner and did my homework and maybe saw my parents, maybe not, you know? Um, so it was a very, like, my parents were keeping up this external persona for Amway and for the people that they, who were, that they were under, who were all very, very wealthy people who'd been in Amway for a long time. 
but their wealth did not come from Amway, but I'll get into that. Um, so that persona was happening, but at home, it was a very, very different yeah. scene, you know? Um, so it, it, so I'll stop there. Do you have, uh, like, do you have any questions? I just jumped right into it. So <laughs> no, no, keep going. Keep okay. Going. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so that was, you know, early, early to mid eighties. Um, I have a younger brother. He was born, uh, when I was six. So he was born in 1982 and that is when things really started to go downhill. So I have very vivid memories of, um, my mom grabbing us and hiding us. Someone was knocking on the door pretty insistently. Um, and, you know, she was, she grabbed us and was holding us down. So if people looked in the windows, they couldn't see us. Um, and they were repossessing our cars. So I very vividly remember that happening, uh, because they had, my dad had this like, you know, brand new Cadillac Eldorado, which was like the hottest Cadillac and, you know, the early eighties. And, um, my mom had an old beat up 280 Z that, was like the best. I love that car. Um, and I don't think they took her car. So I think we just had her car for a little while, but, uh, yeah, things were not good. And, and so that was not helping with my dad's state of mind when he was home. Um, and now understanding what kind of pressure they were under and all of the manipulation that they were subjected to and the toxic positivity. Um, you know, I grew up with all of that, uh, how to win friends and influence people. Yeah. Bullshit, you know, say yes to your potential, um, all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, you know, I think they were both just desperately trying to like come to term, like what, like, why can't we, like, why is this happening? You know? And, um, and, and part of what infuriates me is the man who recruited my dad was his history professor in college. So my dad, my parents met, uh, when God, they met, they got married in 1970. So I think they met towards, kind of the end of the sixties. And my dad, um, I think had been drafted to, and he was in the Navy. So he was in, um, Asia, he was an intelligence officer. So he was, um, intercepting messages between, you know, Vietnam and, and China and, uh, sending them to the U.S. So uh, most of it was Morse code. So my dad taught me Morse code when I was young, which was really cool. That is um, yeah. And he would like quiz me on it all the time. And uh, my dad, that was like one of the cool things about him is he was very important to him to educate me and um, educate me on things that I may not learn in school, you know? So mm -hmm. I don't remember any Morse code, but I, I was damn good at it back then. <laughs> um, and he, like, he would be like, Jacqueline, did, 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 dot, 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 you know, like he would yeah. do a whole thing and I would be able to tell him what it was. Um, and then when my dad got out of the army or Navy, they were living in Taiwan and, uh, my mom was teaching English to, um, the Taiwanese kids. And, uh, 
you know, they were just living the life. Like there's all these pictures of them where my dad had this like cool motorcycle and they were just tooling around Taiwan and, um, and, uh, they got married in Taiwan, uh, New Year's Eve of 1970. And, um, we're not planning on having kids. They were just gonna, you know, like live the life and travel and, you know, whatever. And, uh, they came back to the States and my dad, um, you know, he used his GI bill to go back to college because he hadn't finished college. And so they were in Atlanta because that's where my mom grew up and her family was all there. My dad's family was all in New Jersey. And uh, so my dad went back to Georgia State and that's where he met the man who recruited him out of college. And so my dad dropped out of college because he was promised all this success in Amway. Yeah. It's very sad. It's very oh sad. Oh my God. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so that, which, which is so, I mean, there's so many things wrong with that. Like my, you know, like, first of all, you don't recruit your students. Yeah. You no. know, um, and, and 100% what this man saw in him was his charm and his charisma and his intelligence and his ability to um, make people feel comfortable and safe and cared for. And, and that's what he wanted, you know? Um, and so without any regard to my father's future, you know, in any way, he, he took him under his wing and, and sold him on Amway. You know, it's, it's infuriating to me. And I, um, 100% these people were complicit in my father's death. Um, cause he dragged himself to death at 58. Oh, wow. And, and prior to that, you know, he, he became, uh, just a very unhappy person. Yeah. Um, so sorry about what's going on behind me right now. <laughs> oh, your dog is so cute. He is adorable. He's just, uh, he could be a little obnoxious. Um, <laughs> So, so anyway, so, uh, you know, that's, that's the story. And, and they, my mom and dad, um, kind of hooked up with this family, um, who kind of became like our best friends and they had kids. They had a daughter who was about my age. She was a little bit older than I was. Um, and they had two sons, um, and the one of the sons was only nine months younger than me. So he and I kind of became best friends. And so, of course, you know, our families were like, oh, they're going to grow up and get married. And it's, you know, like they had our futures planned out for us, you know. Yeah. Um, so uh, I remember very clearly um, at some point our parents walked in on us showing the plan to a bunch of our friends right and we were probably we were eight or nine maybe yeah. um and it was like everyone was so proud they told this story at every conference and every party and you know it was like our we walked in and our kids were showing the plan you know like yeah we were gonna be these future amway whatever, <laughs> you know, um, my husband's being very loud right now. I apologize. Um, so, 
So, you know, this was my life. Like all of this is to say, this was my life. I did mm-hmm. not know anything different, you know? And if, if I ever happened to hear anything along the lines of, because in the eighties, there was no anti-MLM in the eighties. Well, there was though, there was oh. anti-AMWIT. Pe- so it was made fun of the way that people make fun of, um, I can't think of an example, but like TV shows and things like that, they would make Amway jokes, Amway and Avon uh, and Mary Kay, Mary Kay. They would make jokes about all three. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, people would knock on doors and go, if it's the Avon lady, I don't want any. Because literally Avon uh, sellers would go door to door at that time. Yeah. Um, and, and Tupperware too, I think. And, uh, and they would make jokes about Amway as well, especially after everything happened with the legislation that changed and made all of those kind of um, companies legal. Right. Because before that they had been illegal. Um, and, I, and I would hear jokes like that and be like, ask my parents, like, what, why, why are they making fun of Amway? Because to me, it was the greatest thing in the world. I mean, that's, that's what I thought. And I remember my dad saying, anytime you're successful, people are going to try to tear you down. That's a really fucked up thing to instill in a child. Yeah. I mean, it's fucked up in general. Yeah. (laughs) But especially to instill in a child, like if you're successful, people are going to try to tear you down. And I never forgot that. And I was scared. Like anytime, um, I remember my mom tried to get me into this really prestigious private school in Atlanta and, um, I didn't do well. I, like I, I played the cello, like she had like, you know, cause that's such an Amway thing to do. Like mm-hmm. their kids go to private school and it's all for yeah. looks. I don't think my parents could have afforded that school. I don't know how they were going to cover that, but yeah. it was, it was more important for people in Amway to know that their children went to private schools than it was how they were going to pay for it. You know, um, and I did not do well on the test. And I remember her being like on the way home, she's furious at me. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I don't like, I didn't want that. Like, I was so confused because I was like, I thought, I thought if you're successful, people are going to tear you down. Like, so it was so confusing to me that I was constantly getting like, in trouble for not being successful at things. Right. Right. And this is all in hindsight. Like, I don't think at the time I was conscious of all of that, but looking back now, I can see why that was so hard Uh for me, because it was like, I would almost purposely sabotage, you know? Oh, did I freeze? You did for a second. Now you're good. Okay. Um, so yeah, so that, you know, so all of that stuff, all of that, uh, you know, toxic positivity and um, thinking grow rich, uh, that was another book that they read um, it, that was kind of the precursor to the secret. It's what a lot of the secret was built on was that book um, because, and, and so it was all of that, like, you've got to think positive thoughts, you've got to visualize yourself. you know, wealthy and, you know, and all that stuff. And, um, so 
yeah, I mean, my parents ended up getting divorced in, uh, I mean, things just continued to go downhill, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Long story short, things continued to go downhill. And the man who recruited my dad, um, they made him my godfather. So, uh, okay, we're going to have to pause for a second. I'm so sorry. Sure. Um, and we're back. <laughs> okay. Sorry about that. Um, so anyway, so this man who recruited my dad was, uh, they made him my godfather. So keep that in mind. <laughs> um, and something else that is freaking hilarious that I told uh, so a, another person I was talking to about uh, my Amway ties um, is our first dog. And I did not put this together, how hilarious this was until I told the story to another person that was interviewing me for a podcast, like two years ago. Um, our first dog, his name was double diamond. <laughs> and, and I, that was just his name. Um, and I had never really thought about it. It was just his name was double diamond, you know? And so I was doing this interview for this podcast and I said, you know, and our first dog's name was double diamond. And she was like, what? <laughs> like, and I was like, oh my God, that's so weird. Like I never thought about how weird that was. And she was like, what did you call him? Like, what was his nickname? And his nickname was double. <laughs> like we called him double. <laughs> I know. And that's like, that's what I'm trying to explain. Like, that's the extent of like normal Amway was to me and how much the culture was just our lives. And I never questioned any of it because it's just what it, that's what I was born into, you know? Right. Um, we had inventory all over our garage. We had people come over to buy inventory from us. Um, you know, I, I mean, it was, it was our lives and, one of the things, and again, I don't know if they still do this, that people don't know is they, anything, any brand that is not an Amway brand, they call brand X. So that was like a dirty word. Like if we had, you know, like a babysitter come over and my parents said like, sure, you can do your laundry over here. And I remember one of them brought Tide with her and my parents, she left it at the house and my parents were like, this is brand X. We do not allow this in our house. Like it was this big deal. So that's the other kind of indoctrination you get when you like grow up in an Amway family is like, you're not allowed to use anything that's not Amway and anything that's not Amway is, um, you know, like, uh, like seriously of the devil, like, because yeah. they're also, um, you know, they didn't call them this back then, but today they're evangelical Christians um, and everything is about God and they all are very active in, you know, and when I was, you know, when we were going, it was a Baptist church. There was mm -hmm. a big Baptist church, Andy Stanley, um, he's a real, he and his dad are, are, uh, what was his dad's name? Cause his dad was the pastor then Andy Stanley. Oh, well, I can't remember. Um, 
but they're like big deals at Atlanta. And that was the church that we all went to. And of course that was the church they all gave money to. And so of course they were very well liked there. Um, and now they go to, uh, there are some of those churches that are like, we have a rock band, like those kind of churches, you know, yeah. <laughs> like that's what they do. There's a, like kind of a franchise of them in Atlanta now. And so they all go to some version of that church. Um, and, and as far as my mom, um, who was now back in Amway, she had left for a little while and she's connected back with all of these people from that she was friends with in the seventies and eighties. Um, they are all Trump supporters, uh, and, and a lot of them are, um, uh, into QAnon. So they're into all those conspiracy theories, refuse to get vaccinated, whole nine yards. Um, so, so anyway, so that was, you know, that was growing up. Um, my parents got divorced in 1989 when I was 13 and, um, it was rough. Like it was, you know, I, like, like we had just all become so accustomed to my dad's abuse. I think that I was like, kind of shocked that it was a problem, <laughs> yeah. you know, and because everybody in in their Amway circles adored my dad and talked about how great he was. And yeah. now I know that that's because he made them a shitload of money. Um, and, and, and they had to know that he was abusive to my mom. Um, I don't know if they knew he was abusing me and my brother, but I mean, my mom was, you know, very much an abused, abused wife. And um, I'm sure she spoke to people about it. And so, you know, she left. Well, him. I would wonder if they actually wouldn't know, because what I've heard about Amway is that they encourage you to not say anything negative so much that yeah. I, yeah. I wonder if she just pretended everything was fine all the time. Yeah, she, she may have. She may have. Um, so, so yeah, they, they got divorced and I found out because I, so it's, uh, so if I was 13, okay, so it was 89. So we did not have cell phones yet. Everybody still had landlines and I had picked up the phone upstairs in our house to make a call. And my mom was on the phone downstairs. And so I heard part of her conversation and what she was saying to her friend was Ron's moving out on Thursday and I don't know how to tell the kids. And I was like, you know, like devastated. Like this is the first I knew that they were getting divorced. Right. Um, and so my mom and I talked about it that night and, uh, you know, I I've told my mom this before, but it was my first experience with a woman being strong and standing up for herself and taking charge of her life. And I remember, I very clearly remember that feeling like internally there was kind of a relief, yeah. you know, because on some level, especially being autistic, I'm very, very sensitive to my environment, you know, like I, I mm -hmm. pick up on things. So I, on some level, I knew what, what was happening in our house was bad and not okay. And, and, you know, my dad was, um, very mean to me. Uh, and it was like, 
there was all this like relief plus like I saw my mom completely differently all of a sudden it was like oh she's gonna get us out of here like she's gonna fix this you know like I'd been waiting for my dad to make some kind of change it never occurred to me that my mom could you know so it was like that was like a very uh you know I'm I'm a strong independent person kind of always have been my whole life. Um, but that was like a, like a serious woman's empowerment moment for me, you know, like, like we, like women can do shit like this, you know? Um, and so, you know, the divorce was not pretty. It was, it was, it was awful. Uh, my dad was, you know, of course, as any, um, and I'm not going to diagnose my father, but he, acted very much like a narcissist. Um, and, uh, you know, he drank heavily and, you know, so all the things that go along with those kind of traits, you know, so he just talked shit about my mom to me and my brother and tried to turn us against her. And that's just hard for kids. I mean, my brother was, if I was 13, he was seven, you know, like, we were very impressionable um and it was a very weird thing to put us in the middle of and my mom did her best not to do that but sometimes you know because uh my brother and I both kind of took the side of our abuser you know and and we would kind of lash out at my mom and blame her and ask her why she wouldn't take dad back and because when we were with my dad not only was he talking shit about my mom, but he was also doing all this, like, I don't know what I did that's so wrong and making us feel sorry for him. And it's just, that's a lot for kids. (laughs) It just is. So it was, it was very messy and very difficult. Um, Especially, you know, me being a teenager, I had to start school over at a new high school as a freshman. Um, And that's tough because everyone, you're already a freshman, which you're like that, you're like the shit, you know, at the high school. Um, and on top of that, I didn't know anybody. And it's all these people who'd all gone to school together since kindergarten. And I was awkward as fuck, you know, and, uh, it's just, you know, and my parents were being divorced and I, you know, it was just, it was awful. It was an awful time for me. And, um, and all of my mom's Amway friends, uh, took my dad's side and they all kind of circled the wagons around my dad and shunned my mom. That also points to me that she didn't say anything about what was going on. Mm-hmm. And yeah. also like that goes like I, everything you're saying to me just adds up. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, so they were so high up. Right. So like mm-hmm. when you're that high up, like you definitely like not everyone, obviously, but like it's common for people that get that high up to have like narcissistic traits mm-hmm. um and yeah. with the alcoholism and like the charm and all, and all of that like it just sounds like the perfect storm yeah and and they were absolutely encouraging all of that in him you know yeah. um so so yeah so I think I mean it was it was not you know it wasn't easy for me but it, it was definitely not easy for my mom you know um I can't imagine what that was like for her, you know, well, actually, I, I actually can't imagine what that was like from her. We'll get to that. Um, <clears throat> but, but I have two kids when it happened to me. Um, so 
Yeah, I mean, it was just rough. And and there was that one family, the family that we had gotten really close with who they were convinced their son and I were gonna get married and have babies and, you know, whatever, and it'd be an, another Amway success story. Right. Um, they stayed, you know, close to my mom. They were cool to her. Uh, but my godfather and his wife and um, a lot of people who, you know, again, were real loyal to my dad, they just kind of dropped her. And so she kind of stopped doing Amway around that time because, I mean, she had a full-time job that was demanding and um, she had a really good job and uh, she had two kids to raise on her own. <laughs> you know, my dad was not paying child support. Um, at this point, my dad had really just, um, they were kind of, they'd kind of fallen from their pedestal in Amway. Um, and so, you know, my dad was just broke, you know, they were both broke, I think, you know, and, uh, not doing well financially. And so he didn't help my mom out at all. So she, she had to bust her ass, you know? Um, and she, you know, honestly wanted the best for us. She did the best that she could. Um, at some point in there, my dad started dating, which of course he did. And he was uh, spending a lot of time in like kind of seedy bars. And so the the women he was dating were uh, not like my mom. <laughs> they did not come from super wealthy families uh, in Atlanta. You know, um, they were, you know, just, uh, I, you know, I don't want to give them a name, but they were not like my mom. Um, and my mom was not happy about it. She did not like us being around these women. Yeah. And I didn't like it either. You know, it was like, I, 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 for anyone who's had divorced parents, like you don't like seeing your parent with another person. It's very, it's upsetting, you know? Um, and so one weekend, my, when my dad had us, me and my brother, he, uh, took us to, Uh, Macon, Georgia, which is hours away from Atlanta to spend the weekend with his girlfriend's family. And he didn't talk to my mom about it, which is just shitty. You know, like if you're going to take someone's children to meet, to, you know, hours away to meet a family that, you know, my mom had never met. She didn't know anything about them. She didn't know the environment we were going to be in. Like you run that by them first you know, it's just common courtesy. And, uh, when she brought us back, cause I had called her from these people's house and it was not a good scene. My mom was not wrong. Um, and she was furious. And so we pulled up and she came flying out of the house, uh, and was like, you know, just started screaming at my dad, understandably. So, and, um, he, grabbed her by the throat and held her up against the wall of the garage by her throat off her feet and was choking her. Um, and I, I, I was screaming, I was freaking the fuck out. Like I, my dad looked like my dad was about to kill my mother in front of me. Yeah. And <clears throat> I think he, like me screaming and I ran up to him and I was like pushing on him, you know, trying to get him off of her. And uh, like snapped him out of it and dropped her. She crumpled to the ground and he staggered backwards and clutched his chest. Like he was having a heart attack, which my dad had had heart problems for years. 
And I ran to him and comforted him while my mom's laying crumpled on the ground. Oh my gosh. After being choked. Yeah. Um, and so this was, and, and the way that this kind of ties into Amway is like, this is, this is the kind of loyalty that yep. had been kind of drilled into me about my dad. And it's, it's such a sign of like all the shit talking that he did and all of them kind of circling the wagons around him really affected me. Yeah. You know? Um, no, absolutely. Yeah. And I, my mom and I have talked about that since years later, years later. Um, she was so hurt and just, you know, it was like my dad, like she couldn't win is how she felt. And I don't blame her, you know? Um, and I apologized, you know, to her for all of that. And she understands it all now, but then it was like, I, I don't know how the woman went on. I honestly, like it just, it just, you know, kills me to think about it now as an adult, you know, yeah. like I'm the age that she would have been around then. And I'm like, God, I couldn't even imagine. So. I mean, you were, you were totally taken in and like, it's hard. Like when you have a persuasive parent who, you know, has you really like wrapped around their finger, like kids 100% like are just swayed by that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, so that was, and my dad's girlfriend was also in the car and she did nothing, nothing to stop any of it. She just sat there and watched it happen. Um, so that was kind of a, uh, that was a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> like it, 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 it's, it was like this demarcation in our lives. And I think things got, you know, went way downhill after that for all of us. I mean, that was now knowing what I know, like that was a very traumatic event for everyone involved, you know, mm -hmm. most for my mother, but um, definitely for me and my brother, you know? Um, and it was around then, I think I was like 15, um, that I started smoking cigarettes. Um, you know, it, me, I had, I had, God, this, I met this girl at school and she was like, she became my best friend and we were these, so, you know, it's, it's the early nineties, it's grunge and, the cranberries and nine inch nails and all of that. And, and we were like into it, you know, we wore combat boots and flannels and fishnets and baby doll dresses and God, I wish I could still dress that way. I'd still love it, you know? Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were going to concerts and we could drive, you know, and she had her own car and we just got into trouble, <laughs> you know, we were just trouble, you know, and we would go, you know, we would go, uh, we met these guys that went to this private school who were all super rich and they were all, uh, trouble too. And we kind of had this little crew of us that hung out every weekend and, uh, and went to concerts and, you know, we smoked cigarettes and then we started drinking and then we started smoking pot and, um, you know, I remember the first time I drank and, and I was very anti any of that because that's why I had been told my parents' marriage had ended was because of my dad's drinking. So I was like, I will never do that. So it was a big deal. You know, I was, I was hurting and, 
you know, looking back now, knowing what I know, because I didn't get my autism diagnosis until three years ago mm -hmm. and my bipolar diagnosis. And um, looking back now, you know, I was, I was an untreated teenager who was both autistic and bipolar. Yep. And that's, you know, it's a rough combination <laughs> with yeah. all the shit I had going on in my life and alcohol absolutely um, helped with that. It just did, you know, it took me out of reality. It stopped my crazy thoughts. You know, I had like, I was just constantly thinking, 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 thinking. And, and, uh, I was, I was terrified of everything and everyone. And, you know, I mean, I, I just was not okay. And alcohol helped. And, and then, you know, smoking weed, like yeah. definitely was like, oh, I'm doing this forever. <laughs> like <laughs> I will never not be stoned. Um, and so it, you know, by the time I was 19, I was just a mess, you know, and things had not gone well and things in my family had not gotten better. They'd gotten worse. And, um, you know, my mom was just really struggling and, um, and she wasn't nice, you know, and I mean, I, you know, looking back, I don't know, of course not. I don't, I don't fault her for that. You know, like, what could she be? How could she, you know? Um, she was, uh, and, and, and on top of that, I'm coming home drunk and she's finding cigarettes in my backpack and, and she can't do anything about it because she has to work full time in order to support her children. And my brother was getting into trouble. I mean, it was just a nightmare. So, uh, you know, all of that led to me ending up in an inpatient, uh, treatment hospital in Pelham, Alabama, um, against my will. <laughs> I was I'm definitely sure that the mental health treatment in Alabama is just pristine. <laughs> mm, yeah, real, real high level stuff. Um, and this is where Amway kind of comes in too, because Amway is also very anti um, psychiatric care, yeah. uh, pharmaceuticals, um, any kind of medication for anything. And I was raised that way. It was right. like I took Neutralite and Amway vitamins and positive thinking and God. And that's what got me through. And mental illness was not real. Um, it was just a, you know, a result of negative thinking. And so when I got to this treatment center, they had a psychiatrist on staff and, you know, like my intake with him, uh, he diagnosed me back then they called it manic depressive. Mm -hmm. Um, but he diagnosed me bipolar. Yeah. And he suggested that I go on Prozac at the time and I was 19. So I was an adult and I had tried to sign myself out, but the counselors talked my parents into telling me that if, if I came home, I could not have my car or live with them. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll stay here then. <laughs> like, and give me much of an option, you know? Yeah. So, uh, but I also didn't have to take meds because I was an adult and, um, uh, so I told the doctor, no. And I was like, how dare you? You know, I, I made this big scene of like, yeah. I'm trying to get off drugs and you're trying to put me on more. And, you know, and, um, so I, you know, I didn't, and my parents supported it. You know, they didn't want me taking pharmaceuticals either. They didn't believe his diagnosis. They thought, you know, he was being, he was just psychiatrist. He was trying to take advantage of us and, you know, that whole spiel that we still see in MLMs yeah. today. We, uh, so I, um, 
I work at a hospital now too. I do, mm-hmm. I do too many things. Um, right. Same but, here. Yeah. <laughs> My hand is in too many pots, but yeah. um, yeah, I, I see that still even, I mean, who, I don't know if they're tied up in multi-level marketing at home or not, but I see that still like that extreme distrust of medications. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, but what you were talking about like way earlier um, that's like part of the problem why like we have so many people falling into QAnon mm-hmm. is because the multi-level marketing companies just like they feed all of this distrust in the government. They like, cause the FTC is out to get us and like all this stuff. And like, it just trickles all the way out. And it's so easy to go from oh my gosh, my products are all natural too. I'm never going to get a vaccine. Mm -hmm. Well, and make no mistake, Neutralite is very responsible for that movement in the United States. Neutralite started in the 30s. Jay Van Andel and Rich DeVos, who were the original who started Amway, yep. who I have met both of them. I went to fucking summer camp with their kids, um, grandkids, maybe both. Uh, they bought Neutralite from the guy who started it. And he was absolutely a snake oil salesman. He was, you know, very anti-psychiatry and, you know, and all the... I mean, we can get into what was going on in the thirties. There was a lot of shit going on in the thirties. That's when AA started. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, guys like Bill Wilson and, and, uh, Bob shit. I forgot his Smith Smith. I'm not sure. I think it's Bob <laughs> Smith. Um, I should know this. I was in AA for 20 freaking years. Um, but they, you know, they were very much into Carl Jung and kind of all those, uh, you know, real um, uh, uh, controversial psychiatrists, and that that field was just kind of coming into its own, and and people were suspicious of it, and and so Bob and Bill were able to kind of capitalize on that, even though they were doing drugs, <laughs> they were doing acid, um, but they found a way to stop drinking, um, and they actually stole the twelve steps from a Christian or a religious organization called the Oxford groups, um, and kind of started their own thing. And that's, that's why AA got as big as it did. Wow. But, that was a nice tangent. <laughs> um, oh, I can go on for days about AA, but anyway, uh, so, so yeah, so I, I, what I was saying is make no mistake that Neutralite had a big part to play and still, and, and, the result is what we are seeing today is fucking QAnon and yeah. Donald Trump being president for Christ's sake. Now, what's so funny about that, that they don't, these people don't think about, I mean, the cognitive dissonance is mm-hmm. astounding is Amway is so ingrained in the government. There, it's, and it's both sides, bipartisan, both absolutely. Both sides. 
Absolutely. So on one hand, they don't trust the government. On the other hand, they trust Amway, who is absolutely embroiled in the government. Yeah. Right. But they think Amway is doing what they want them to do in the government. So it's fine. They're wrong. They're absolutely wrong, but they don't care. Amway only cares about Amway. (laughs) Absolutely. And they've got all of their followers so brainwashed yeah that they are fine with it but like you know like so amway only cares about amway and like the proof of that is how quickly distributors will be fired for the smallest things that make zero sense and they're just gone they could have a huge team gone amway does not care no fired and shunned yes shunned um so okay that was a whole other tangent but (laughs) a little history for you yeah um and then we you know then we had ronald reagan and his whole capitalism it's all a mess anyway so (laughs) uh so i was in this uh inpatient program for 28 days because that's all my insurance would cover and which got me off of drugs for 28 days and realizing like I I should stop doing drugs. Like I, I could agree with that, (laughs) you know, like, um, and, uh, and introduced to the 12 steps and Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and convinced that I was an alcoholic, an addict. And they referred me to a program in Atlanta for aftercare, uh, called Atlanta Insight, which was one of Bob Meehan's enthusiastic sobriety programs. And, uh, so Bob Behan's programs operate very much like an MLM. Uh, Bob Meehan himself, um, he started these programs in 1971. He, uh, you know, claimed to have been in and out of penitentiaries and jails, which we're finding out now that we don't think is true, but it was a part of this story he told to uh, give himself some um, clout, you know, and, and get gain respect from, because he was 29 in 1971 and he had, you know, gotten out of what we now think was a narcotics farm in Kentucky um, I can also go off on a history lesson about the narcotics farms, but I won't. It was a it was an experiment uh, in the '70s to deal with people who were addicted to drugs, and uh, he ended up, um, you know, meeting this pastor named Father Charlie uh, at an Episcopalian church. Who, uh, you know, very similar to recruiters in Amway, he saw Bob and I think was like this guy is care because he was once again charismatic charming could pull you in could connect with people really easily could convince you that I mean he could sell ice to an Eskimo that's what they used to say about my dad your dad could sell ice to an Eskimo you know um and I think father Charlie saw this in him and so he kind of brought him in and you know, took him under his wing and he sat him down in front of a bunch of kids and their youth program who were having problems with drugs. And Bob gained this following with all these kids. They loved him. They adored him. He smoked cigarettes. He had long hair. He cussed. He talked shit about their parents. Like he became this adult who understood them finally. 
Yeah. Um, and that is how these programs started. And then what happens? All these kids go to their friends and they go, you got to come to this cool meeting with me. Yeah. There's this guy named Bob and he's so cool and we don't do drugs. We're high on life. And, and that's recruitment. And it, it's a, it's a pyramid, it was a pyramid scheme, you know? Um, and so that's how those programs started. So fast forward to 1996, we're talking 28 years later, here I am, I show up with my Amway indoctrination. And uh, I've now been in this outpatient where they've told me that I am an addict and an alcoholic. And now I'm in this inpatient program and an enthusiastic sobriety program where you walk in the door and people hug you and tell you they love you. Oh. So I've got number one, super hot guys hugging me and telling me they love me. Now I'm a 20 year old woman, <laughs> you know, uh, who'd been, you know, getting high and drinking and having sex. And that was my life. And uh, now I thought that, you know, after being in that impatient, I thought like I was going to have to be a fucking nun you know, like sobriety to me sounded like sitting at home and knitting on Friday nights and talking about boring shit, <laughs> you know, like, uh, and, and I got to this place and there were people my age who were like lively and looked like they were having fun and they still were kind of edgy and they were smoking cigarettes and were like, you, you know, so sobriety can be fun. It doesn't have to be boring. And I was like, thank God, sign me up sign me up. If this is my option, sign me up, you know? Um, and I was in from the beginning and then all of the thinking, all of the indoctrination, it's all the same. Yeah. The toxic pox positivity, um, uh, the, uh, if you know, the same thing they do in MLMs where it's like, well, if you're not making money and it's not working for you, you're doing something wrong. It's right. not the system. It's not the products because look at me. I'm your, your, you know, they called them sponsors in Amway. I'm your sponsor and I'm making $600,000 a year. If I can do it, you can do it. And if you can't pull it off, it's the problem is you. And so we need to figure out what you're not thinking positively enough about, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and, and that is enthusiastic sobriety. They do the same fucking thing. If you're not happy, you're not working the 12 steps hard enough. You're not close enough to God. Spiritually, you're lacking somewhere. And I, I mean, that was how I was raised. This wasn't anything new to me, you know? So I, I was in, I was in absolutely from day one. Um, and so... Long story short, because I was not an addict or an alcoholic, uh, I was educated. I, I am also very intelligent. I am also very charismatic. I'm also very kind and loving and people feel comfortable with me. Um, I was like a fucking shining star in that place. Oh, um, and they loved me and I loved it too. You know, it was like, finally, the, you know, there were all these, there are symptoms of, I don't know if symptoms is the right word, characteristics of autism and bipolar that are very similar to people who are, who have addiction problems. 
you know, like, especially if you're untreated, especially if you're not getting any kind of help with manic depressive episodes, with sensory overload that I get, like, I look back now and I'm like, oh my God, like now that I know, like, and I have uh, solutions for my sensory processing disorder, my life is like, it's so different now, you know, like I know I can't spend all this time in large groups and I know situations I should or shouldn't be in because I know my, I mean, I literally, I mean, I dissociate. Yep. If if I'm in a group of people and there's too much shit going on, I am checked the fuck out and I know it now. And I, you know, and I, and I know what to do if that happens. I didn't know that back then. Right. But all these things that all these traits that they're giving you of alcoholism and addiction, like feeling lonely, feeling completely alone in a room full of people, uh, feeling like you have a hole in your gut. Um, uh, what else, you know, negative thinking, um, a manic depression, anger, sadness, like that does not just apply to addiction. That applies to a lot of things, which is why there are people who go to school for eight fucking years to be able to diagnose those things (laughs) because there is nuance. Yep. And there are ways to diagnose. Like when my therapist and I started talking about the potential for me being autistic, I took an assessment, a very intensive assessment to find out if that was actually the issue because you don't want to misdiagnose someone. Right. Because in the actual professional psychological arena, it matters that you diagnose people properly. And that's important because you do harm if you do not. So I end up here in Georgia. It's Still this way today, as far as I know, in order to be a certified substance abuse counselor, to have those letters after your name, all you need is a GED Uh. or a high school diploma. So this staff had these letters after their names and zero education. The only education they had was from Bob Meehan's training program that they went to. So the other thing that's happening here that's completely unethical is they only hire clients. So once you're 18, let's say you join one of these programs at 15. Three years later, you pay $5,000, you go through a six to eight week training program built and created by Bob Meehan himself, who, by the way, did not have any education (laughs) in in anything um, other than he and his wife were real big in the, you know, metaphysical Louise Hay affirmations uh, anti-medication, all that bullshit. As a matter of fact, I think they sold Amway at one point. Um, (laughs) seriously. Uh, so he's got no education either. And he's built this training program that there you go from one day, you're a client. The next day you're a trainee. Six weeks later, 
you're a staff member and you're working with adolescents who oh potentially God. have mental health issues. It is fucked. Yeah. A bare minimum, they think they have a substance use issue. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So, and, and, and they don't, none of these staff members have to have any kind of education. Right. And, and, and part of the curriculum is they tell parents to pull their kids out of school because they might get high. So some of these kids haven't even have barely finished high school. Oh, that's so sad. And like, and it's just so hard to do much without your diploma. Yep. (laughs) This is why I am back in college at the age of 45, because I never finished college. Because they told me like, why? Because, spoiler alert, I started working for them. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even go through Bob's training. They hired me as a receptionist when I was 21. So I had only been a client for 10 months when they hired me to work there. Um, so initially I was, you know, a, um, a receptionist, I just worked in the front at the front desk and I was the, you know, I was the face. I was the first person people saw when they walked in the door. I was the first voice they heard on the phone, which is great. I'm great at it. Yeah. You know? Um, and a year later they opened a satellite office in Augusta, Georgia, which is about two and a half hours Southeast of Atlanta. And they sent me down to be the office manager. So me and two other counselors went down there. And so at this point I'm being called a counselor and a reception. Like I'm kind of getting all the, you know, all the titles at this point, right? Yeah. Um, And because it's based on the 12 steps, I'm also a sponsor because like anybody can be a sponsor, right? So I'm sponsoring children, you know, um, and I, I'm, I'm having an effect on very vulnerable teenagers and young adults, you know, I'm, and I'm just parroting stuff that I've been taught literally my whole life. And I wish I could apologize to every single one of those people. Um, but that's part of why I'm doing the work I'm doing today. It's my chance to like make up for the abuse I was complicit in because I absolutely was, you know. Um, and so I worked there and and then a um, bunch of shit went down and they shipped me off to Phoenix because I was so spiritually bankrupt. I had been involved in this whole scandal that happened and um they moved me to Phoenix to, to work under this woman who was like Bob's right-hand woman. And she was the only person who could help me because I was that sick and fucked up. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, so I ended up working in Phoenix until 2009. There's a, there's a lot that happened there, but I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, and finally my dad died in 2008. That's when he finally kind of had his last, uh, basically he couldn't know his body could no longer process alcohol uh but because he'd been drinking for so long he couldn't live without alcohol and so that's what killed him 
which is yeah. like the saddest thing I've ever heard in my life. Oh. Um, and so that kind of like flipped a switch in me and I just got like, you know, I'm gonna, I need to do something else with my life. Cause at this point I'm 32 years old <laughs> and I am making a thousand dollars a month. I was sharing a bedroom with an 18 year old who wanted me to sleep on the couch in my own home that I paid for because she wanted to have her boyfriend over and they wanted to have sex. So she was like, you know, once or twice a week, would you mind sleeping on the couch? And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. And, uh, you know, I just, I just hit this point where I was like, I, I, I need to, I, I just need to move on. It, there was like this voice inside of me that was like, I need to move on. And so I quit and, uh, because I had been barely making any money, um, I was broke. I was in debt. I hadn't paid my car payment in months. I hadn't paid any of my credit card bills in months. I had no savings left. Uh, and then I was asked to move out of the house I was living in because I no longer worked for the program. So the people I was living with who still worked there didn't want me there anymore because they didn't want to get involved in my, you know, spiritual karma yeah, that I was, you know, inevitably going to have, and I was homeless. <laughs> so I'm in Phoenix, homeless, and uh, it's 2009. So the job market was not great. <laughs> it was not great. Yeah. Um, I, I got two jobs. One was working at an Einstein Bagels in the mornings, and one was working at a Massage Envy in the afternoons and the evenings. And I did that for November, December, January, February, four months caught up on all my bills. Uh, finally, I was couch surfing and sleeping in my car. Uh, finally, my manager at Einstein's found out that I was homeless and she was like, what the fuck? You are coming to stay with me. And she let me live in her guest room free of charge because she was a fantastic person. She still is. Um, I still talk to her. She, I, I mean, she's fucking saved my life. Um, and then March, March of 2010, I moved back to Atlanta and I pulled into Atlanta with $11 in my bank account. <laughs> I had already interviewed for a job. I was starting that job a month after I moved there. And so here's where multi-level marketing companies come back into my life. Okay. So I had not completely come out of, you know, a lot of the beliefs I had you know, after 32 years of those beliefs, I wasn't just going to drop them overnight. Right. So oh, of course not. You didn't have any like thing to show you, like you had like that cognitive dissonance, but like on some level, but you weren't, you didn't know why it was there. Yeah. And one of the really lovely things about enthusiastic sobriety programs is that they, uh, and 12 step programs, including AA, um, if you, you know, have the disease of alcoholism, which I was convinced I did, and you veer off the path, you are destined to get drunk and die. So you're living under this constant threat of death, right? So questioning any of these beliefs equal death to me. So I was not ready to question them, <laughs> you know, yeah, like that, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, 
So I moved back to Atlanta. I'm living with this friend of mine who also had worked for the program. And she had had some devastating life events. And uh, when she was at her most vulnerable, a woman approached her in a parking lot about Mary Kay. And she had used Mary Kay kind of off and on her whole life. And she jumped right in because also, you know, she'd been working there for the program is the same amount of time I had and had all the same ways of thinking. And so working for an MLM was like, you know, getting under a warm blanket. Right? <laughs> it was, it was like, oh, this, you know, I'll do this. And so she signed everybody up underneath her, including me. So I started selling Mary Kay, which let me just tell you what this did to my mother. My mother had started doing Amway again at this point. She was back in with uh, her, her old crew. Um, after my dad died, I guess they felt bad because they found out that he was, you know, when they found out how he died, they were like, oh, damn, <laughs> like he really was an alcoholic. He really did have a drinking problem, you know? And so I think they felt guilty and they kind of pulled my mom back into the fold and, uh, and Mary Kay was like one of Amway's biggest competitors, right? Because Amway has a makeup line. Yeah. And they were constantly competing with Mary Kay and they could not win. Makeup was all Mary Kay did. You know, she did a great job of setting herself up in that market as a leader. And she, they were, her sales were always better than Amway's. So for me to start selling Mary Kay, I'm sure killed my mother a little bit on the inside <laughs> because I was working for the enemy, <laughs> right? Um, and let me tell you, Mary Kay is a trip and they have all the same shit. You know, they used to say, aren't you sick of your J-O-B? Do you yeah. know what J-O-B stands for? Just over broke. Or just over bills. Either oh, one. Yeah. yeah. I've also heard another one, but I can't think of what it is right now. I don't remember. It's, it's not going to come to me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they've got tons of them. I'm sure I'll oh, think yeah. of them as we're talking. Oh, um, yeah. you, women also can't wear pants. You have to wear skirts. I've heard that. Preferably pink. Um, and, you know, obviously it didn't go well. I mean, <laughs> I was broke. and when this woman, so my friend that had signed up, the woman she signed up under was like an executive director, had the pink Cadillac, the whole nine yards. Now, this woman, before she started working for Mary Kay, was a financial advisor and she was already very wealthy. So again, this is another example of her wealth did not come from Mary Kay, but she portrayed herself as someone whose wealth did come from Mary Kay. And because this woman could buy thousands of dollars worth of makeup every month to keep her rank. Right. Right. And because you had to buy at least $250 worth of makeup personally every month in order to keep your discount, which was 50%. Right. And so that is how you were able to sell your inventory and get a profit. You sold your inventory, you bought it at wholesale, which was 50% mm -hmm. off, and then you sold it at retail. So you get 50% profit. 
right? But you have to buy $250 worth of makeup every month to keep that discount. That's insane. Who needs $250 worth of makeup a month? Uh, no one. Um, now, now here's well, the thing. I guess people that shop at, at some of those stores might spend that much, but probably not a month. Right. Like the Kardashians. Sure. <laughs> um, but, but, the, but the thing, here's how they would, if I ever said, I don't need that much fucking makeup. I don't wear a lot of makeup. Like I, maybe once or twice a week I'll put on makeup, but that's yeah. it. Um, and then there's also the, the, um, skincare line that is, you know, but, but again, I don't need that much skincare, like, you know, um, but if I would say like, I don't need that, it was like, well, but you should also be buying it for the people that you're selling to. Like, if you're not purchasing at least $250 a month, then you're not working hard enough. Right. Right. Um, and but ultimately what they wanted you to do is recruit. Wanted you to sign people up. Let's get those people going. Cause then you get a team. And when you get a certain amount of people on your team, you level up. And then once you get a certain, and then once those people start to get people on their team, they level up, you level up. Then you get the red coat. Then you get the, this, then you get the, that, then you, yeah. you know, and all these different, you know, you're a director, you're an executive director, you're a star director, you're a emerald director, whatever. And the ultimate goal, of course, was the pink Cadillac, like, uh, of course, <laughs> hands down. That's what we all wanted. Um, and, you know, I will never forget. So my friend puts me on, on the phone with the woman who signed her up, the, the ex-financial advisor who was, you know, had a Cadillac and all that shit. Yeah. And she was like, first, we need to get you some inventory. So you need to buy $7,200 worth of inventory. $7,200. And I was like, <laughs> I get, she was like, well, do you have a credit card? And I said, uh, yeah, it's maxed out. And she said, okay, well, what we need to do is you need to apply for a credit card. And I have a guy. So she was like, I'm going to have you talk to, you know, this guy at this bank. I have a, you know, I have a connection with them. Of course she did. She's yeah. a fucking financial advisor and we'll get you approved. So I didn't get approved. Of course I didn't get approved. So now she's like, fuck, you know, like, <laughs> what are we going to do? And when I asked her, like, why do I need to have this much inventory? And she said, well, because you'll be very motivated to sell it and make your money back. Right. So this is one of those like foundational principles of MLMs is like, if you have all this shit and you're out, you've gone into debt to purchase this inventory, you're going to be very motivated to get rid of it and make the money back. Right. But this woman tried to, she, I mean, she was pressuring me to spend $7,000 and go into debt, $7,000, knowing I was three months away from being homeless. But that didn't matter. What mattered was, let's remember, if I bought $7,200 worth of inventory, that levels her up, which I learned later. When you start to sign people up, the more inventory they buy, the better it is for you. Right? Right. 
So but also I bet in the back of her mind too, she was thinking this is going to be my success story. Yep. 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 So, and, and here I am again in this situation where I'm being told that if I really cared, I would find some way to make this happen. And that it was a self-worth issue. And that if I, you know, I didn't care, if I cared about myself, if I cared about my future, the fact that I could not come up with $7,200 and that I couldn't get approved for a credit card for $7,200 was somehow my fault. And, and meant that I needed to work harder on myself. Um, and so, you know, long story short, I was not successful in Mary Kay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I really loved my job. I loved my full-time job and I was making good money. And these women, you know, I would go to these, because we had to go to meetings, you know, mm-hmm. once or twice a week and we had to wear skirts and it was this big, you know, woo woo, and everybody got awards for how much they sold and all this recognition and adoration. So here's the love bombing, right? Yeah. So the, everyone's getting love bombed at these meetings. And, uh, and I remember them doing the J-O-B thing. And I remember being like, but I'm not just over bills. Like I'm making good money. I was making good money, you know, like, especially compared to the thousand dollars a month I was making at my last job. Um, you know, I was making $22 an hour at this job. And that was like the blew my fucking mind, you know? Um, and I just got real, like, I don't, you know, I don't want to do this. Uh, so I, you know, I backed out of Mary Kay and of course my friend was very unhappy with me because I was signed up under her technically. Um, our relationship ended up being absolutely destroyed, um, because of her issues with me and how much money she felt I needed to pay her. It was, it, it was very, very sad, but we, our relationship ended because of Mary Kay. Um, And then, you know, I kind of had moved on. I was still going to AA meetings and I, you know, I got my own place and, and, and the, the, you know, the, the few people who had still been talking to me from the program, who some of them I had been friends with for a decade, they started to fall off and stop talking to me. And I was like, oh, I'm not special. Mm -hmm. Now that I am no longer working there, these people are no longer going to be my friends. And I got very disillusioned with all of it. Um, And so slowly over time, I also got very disillusioned with AA. Uh, I started seeing a very good therapist. Um, This woman changed my life. I'm going to have her on the podcast in a couple of weeks. And I'm so excited for it. Uh, uh, And she was the first person that I said out loud. I do not think I am an alcoholic. And, uh, I started to work through that. I stopped going to AA, however, <laughs> not before a friend of mine who I had known through Bob Meehan's programs started selling essential oils and what had come along with, uh, these enthusiastic sobriety programs was, uh, you know, what, what, what comes along with those ways of thinking is, and that distrust of uh, the medical community is alternative health, right. the, the wellness industry. So I was, and not to mention, I did not have health insurance. I never had health insurance. The program never provided me health insurance. The woman I was working for couldn't afford to 
give me health insurance. So, and so I do feel for people that are in that situation. That's why a lot of people like that end up in, you know, that alternative wellness world, because they're just trying to find, they can't afford to go to a doctor. And I couldn't, I certainly couldn't. And I was having all these digestive issues and, you know, sinus issues. Later, I found out that the house I was living in was covered in mold. Mm -hmm. Uh, It almost killed me, but I was trying to find solutions to all of this. And, um, you know, she popped up with essential oils and I bought right in, bought a starter kit, started trying to hawk essential oils, young living, young living. I was there. I was with it. I was like, this is going to be great. This is going to be it. This time, this is different from Mary Kay. Right. This time I'm going to do it. And I went to a convention with her and, uh, the whole, the, it was around the time that the FTC had told them, like, you cannot make medical promises with these oils. Cause they were saying things like it cures cancer and it will headaches and blah, you know, yeah. And so the FTC had just come down really hard on them. And the entire conference was all these leaders getting up on the stage and making fun of that and right. saying, well, we can't say that this will cure your cancer. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, <laughs> but it can improve your immune response. This is what we have to say now. And I remember it was the first time that I was like, that's kind of fucked up. Yeah. You know, like, like I had started to get a little bit, you know, the woman that I worked for was an industrial and organizational psychologist. And so she was not woo woo at all, you know, right. I mean, a little bit, she had her things, but when it came to medical care, she yeah. was like, go to a fucking doctor. Are you kidding me? You know? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so I had started to like change my thinking around that a little bit. And then I was in one of these, you know, young living, like my upline had their own Facebook group. And I was in, you know, that Facebook group and this woman was an ER nurse and she was talking about how she was, you know, uh, diffusing stress away in the emergency room, right? Stress away smells like dog shit. It is the worst (laughs) smell. And I had tried diffusing it in my home because, you know, stress away, bring it on, but it gave me headaches. And so I, you know, I was like, oh my God, she's diffusing. And first of all, you don't diffuse essential oils because people can be allergic to them. I don't care how pure Gary Young says his goddamn oils are. It doesn't matter. It's still, those are very intense. Like essential oils are very, very, very concentrated. And even diffusing them can have an effect on people. Right. Especially if they're immunocompromised, like that is not okay. And all these women were like, fuck them. They're just detoxing. That's their problem because people were complaining. The other nurses were complaining and saying like, you cannot just fill this area where innocent people have to be bombarded by this smell. Right. And I remember being like, Jesus Christ. And then I commented because my, I had diffused their lavender oil in my house and my husband is violently allergic to lavender. I did not know that at the time. I think we were still, I I don't even think we were engaged yet. We were just living together. And, um, and he was like that, I can't, that smells giving me a headache and making me nauseous. And I was like, what? 
it's young living. It's the purest, you know. And so I commented that, but so I stopped uh, diffusing it, of course, because right. I love him. And uh, and I mentioned it in this thread. I said, hey, look, you guys, like I get, I get where you're coming from, but like my husband is allergic to uh, young, you know, the young living lavender oil and they like attacked. It was like, how dare you, you know, like, that's not what he's allergic to. There's something else in your home that he's allergic to. There's no way he's allergic to these oils. Are you diffusing some other kind of, you know, inferior oil and you're not telling him? I mean, I was like, and I was like, leave. I left that group. Um, and then, you know, after that, I still kind of had that belief that like supporting someone who was in an MLM was supporting a local business. And, and, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I made this decision, like, I'm not going to sign up for them anymore, but I will buy, you know, these products right. from my friends to support them. And so, you know, it was, you know, it works. One of my, cause I was a personal trainer at the time. And so I had this client who sold it works. And so she started sending me wraps. And then I had another client who did juice plus. And so she got me started on their auto renew delivery of juice plus smoothies. And I, you know, and I was just getting like, what the, I hate this. Like, it's all the same shit. Like you have to have something delivered and it has to be pulled from your checking account. And it's impossible to fucking cancel. You know, I'd started to kind of hit that point. And, yeah. um, and then, you know, really it, it wasn't until I started, uh, listening to my favorite murder. Are you familiar? I'm not. Okay. It's a great podcast. It's a true crime podcast. And, uh, you know, they started talking about how MLMs are basically cults. And I, and I just was like, oh shit. And it was like dominoes. Like it, like everything started making sense to me, you know? Um, and, and that was really the beginning of the end. You know, that's when I really started to understand. I watched betting on zero, which is an amazing documentary. Yeah. Um, a few other documentaries. I heard the Nexium. uh, one of the first podcasts about Nexium was on this, this podcast put out by the, by CBC radio, um, called uncover, he, he, I think he was one of the first people to interview Sarah Edmondson. He was mm -hmm. a friend of hers and he had run into her and she told him her story of Nexium. So I heard that. Um, and I started to make all these connections. You know, I had stopped going to AA. I, you know, I was, I was dating uh, and about to marry someone who was not involved in any of this shit at all and was like really objective and helped me to understand, you know. Um, and, and then I started listening to the dream podcast and, and that, I mean, that first season, man, it was like, oh shit. Yeah. This was my whole life. <laughs> you know, like so many things make sense now. Uh, and then, you know, I just, I started speaking out about it wherever I could. And then in 2020, at the end of 2020, um, you know, I also had started really wanting to do something about Bob Meehan's programs because right. I realized like, it's the same shit. Yeah. And I started to really look at the abuse I suffered there and, and how, and just, you know, like 
I just spent the next five or six years with like just one bombshell after another, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then I got my autism diagnosis and my bipolar diagnosis. And I looked back and it's like, just been this mixture of like rage and relief and like everything, you know? Um, and then in, in November of 2020, this uh, survivors group for people who had been through Bob Meehan's programs popped up on Facebook. And within the first three months, there were 800 people in it. Wow. And yeah. And there was a crew of us that kind of got together and we were like, why don't we fucking do something about this? Um, and that's what started uh, enthusiastic sobriety abuse was the, the, the movement where it first started. Um, and that crew of us kind of were the ones who started the nonprofit and, and decided to get serious about it. And, um, you know, and then in September, uh, I started the podcast around in there somewhere, the On the Emmys podcast. And then in September, I decided to kind of focus only on the podcast. And I stepped away from uh, the nonprofit. And then I realized the connection in my life between growing up in Amway and joining, you know, a, a, a cult <laughs> essentially at the age of 20. Um, and, and then, you know, I kind of started following all these like anti MLM people on, on Instagram and the community has just been amazing. And I've just so enjoyed getting to know everybody. Um, and then, and now here we are. <laughs> Here we are, you know, uh, you and I have been talking back and forth for a while and um, we're going to be on each other's podcasts and, and uh, you know, we're, we're working hard to, you know, get the message out there about both, you know, Bob Meehan's programs and, and the danger of MLMs. Yeah. I mean, it's just so interesting too, to me, like these fake counseling programs, like I, I had like a really big, like imposter syndrome moment when I first learned about like fake counseling programs, which I didn't know about until I learned about anti-MLM. Mm -hmm. Um, and I learned about Nexium and then mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, I was like, what if my whole master's degree is a lie? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, because you actually have a master's degree. Yes. <laughs> That's, that's the, the difference there. Yeah. I, you know, there, the, the mental health industry in the United States is a disaster. It's oh. a business. It's a billion dollar industry. It, it's, and, it's terrible. It's and absolutely terrible. It's destroying families. It's destroying kids. I mean, I can't tell you, I, I have a, um, I've just been contacted by some survivors of another program uh, that are going to come on the podcast. Um, because now I have this formula, you know, cause we've gotten four or five articles written. Mm -hmm. We've got production companies interested in doing documentaries. Um, we've got, uh, you know, uh, one of the women I worked with at the nonprofit, she is working with breaking code silence. Um, which is a, a nonprofit that has been, um, actually they've been working with Paris Hilton uh, and they've been, you know, just kicking ass at, at getting places shut down at getting uh, legislation passed uh, for, for stronger regulations. There's no regulations on these places. You know, they, they do this very, the state licensing boards do these very cursory inspections of the property and mm -hmm. the records, but they don't know what's going on day to day, you know? Um, we, you know, the record keeping that we did when I worked there was all bullshit. 
we right. were doing we were doing in services you know um so they don't know and it's time for the word to get out you know and yeah it's time for people to understand like we cannot throw our the our children to the wolves because they're difficult we right. can't do that you you don't hand your child over for six months to a wilderness program with no contact with them and not knowing what's happening. You cannot do that. Um, I know you want to, I understand your kids are a pain in the ass, but there's gotta be a better solution than what we're doing. There are better solutions. (laughs) We're creating traumatized adults. Yep. You know, I'm 45 years old and I'm still in therapy unpacking this shit. Yeah. This is, I don't want this for other people. I don't want other people to go through what I've been through, you know? Um, So we have this formula now for how to get the media's attention. And, uh, you know, I've got email templates and, and, you know, uh, the nonprofit has a a mass complaint form that they've created that, uh, that, you know, the woman who's running the nonprofit right now, she, I mean, worked her ass off and created this complaint form that's trauma-informed so people don't have to relive their fucking trauma in order to file a complaint and you know and these these ethics complaint boards they don't care Uh, what they care about is covering their own asses and covering the the asses of these programs who have to pay them money in order to stay licensed i mean it's back to ronald reagan and capitalism but anyway um, (laughs) it all goes back to that for me um but yeah, so we, we have this formula now for how we can start to get the attention of, you know, what I, what I really want to do is there needs to be legislation that, um, that there's, there's federal regulation of these programs. Bob Meehan was able, he, he was shut down in multiple states and told you are never to work with teenagers again. So he moved to another state and he opened another program. Oh, that's disgusting because there's no federal regulation of these programs and and it, so 50 fucking years dan rather interviewed him in 19 in the 1980s and exposed him then and he just waited for it to die down oh. so that that is my ultimate goal um there is a a bill I'd have to look, it's, it's the, uh, the initials are ACCA. It's uh congregate care. I can't remember the whole thing because I have a horrible memory because I'm traumatized, but anyway, um, but it's, it's in the link tree that's, uh, in the link in my bio and the, on the MS Instagram account, um, you can go sign a petition about it. Um, so ultimately my goal, you know, is to, to lobby for there to be more regulation of these programs, um, for survivors to be fucking believed, uh, you know, and, um, for these ethics committees to be held more responsible for responding to complaints, because if you don't say the right thing in a complaint, they'll just send it back to you. And so they're making these kids relive their trauma over and over and over. And then they're telling them like, well, this isn't good enough. And it's like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry that my abuse isn't good enough for you, you know? Or like, Um, if you're missing information, like, why don't they just say like, hey, like, do you have anything about this? 
Like, mm-hmm. I, I, this is great. Thank you for what you sent me, but yes. I also need this. Do you yes. have this? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's insanity. So it's funny how communication works. Right. Right. You know, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how like your job is to care for the vulnerable in our society. And you actually do not do that. You're more concerned with your money. Right. Um, it makes me so mad. It's um, infuriating because yeah. I, the other thing I want to add to what you're saying is I think that there should be education in high school around multi-level marketing because these kids are graduating and learning and like being recruited by Cutco. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then they go into college and, you know, they're, they're also being recruited by the military, which <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> if you want to talk about the military industrial complex and what a cult that is. Um, no, we are not going to approach that in this one. <laughs> I have a lot of work to do. Okay. That's all I have to say. I have a lot of work yeah. to do and I'll, I'll be doing it till the day I die. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, so, so like I, I was saying, you know, we have this formula now for how we can start to get these people some help and some justice. And so I've got a couple of um, survivors from some other young people's programs who are going to come on the podcast and I'm going to, I'm going to help them, you know, get set up to, to start making some waves and, and bring some you know, some light and some justice to these, these schools and these programs who are just abusing children. Yeah. Um, so stay tuned, yes. <laughs> stay tuned to my podcast. Yes. And I will link uh, your podcast and your Instagram uh, in the bio, in my bio to um, the show notes, whatever it's called. <laughs> whatever. You know, somewhere. At the bottom, the There'll the be a link are. somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. You can find it. <laughs> um, well, I feel like we talked for so long. We did. What time is it? Oh my God. Okay. It's been two hours. That's usually about how long my, my podcast runs. So I know I talk so much. You did great, but thank you so much for being on. And um, thank you for having me. Thank thank you so much. I love your podcast. Thank you. Um, It's just, you know, it's just fantastic. And I'm, I'm so glad that we met and we're, you know, we're, we're, get, we're working together on yes. all this stuff. Yes. Um, everyone go listen to on the MS and sign the petition in, uh, Jacqueline's bio. Yes. The and, Congregate Care Act. Yes. Um, yes. And I'll be streaming this Saturday live on Twitch on the MS pod has a Twitch channel. Um, and it's a new thing. So come check us out. If you're just, you know, sitting around the house on Saturday, I'll have all the, the time that we're going to start and all the information up on my social media this week. Oh my gosh. Love it. Everyone yeah. go check them out. Yeah. Bye. Bye.